Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. Zip Recruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. And now our listeners can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. Today's show is brought to you by Ericsson. Have you ever wished you could stream high-quality HD videos on a crowded train? Or maybe you wished you could sit courtside and watch a big game live from your couch. Well, Ericsson is about to change the game in cellular networking with high-speed, low-latency 5G. Find out what the future looks like at ericsson.com slash 5G. That's ericsson.com slash 5G. This is Recode Media from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Maggie Haberman, in for Peter Kafka. I'm a reporter at the New York Times, but I'm here today at the Axios Studios in Washington, D.C. to talk to Jonathan Swan. He's the national political reporter for Axios. Jonathan, welcome to Recode Media. Hi, Maggie. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for having me on your <laughs> On my guest, my, guest, yeah. my guest episode. I'd like to just jump in generally to get your thoughts. Uh, several weeks after the midterms, two years into President Trump's administration, uh, and I should just note for people listening that you are one of the reporters who I follow closely. You are one of the people whose work I most admire and who I think has really captured this White House in a way that few others have. So knowing that, can you talk a bit about what you anticipate from the White House uh, for the first six months of 2019? Well, to sort of pull back slightly, um, I think we're at a a pretty pivotal moment right now for the president. Um, if you look in the rearview mirror, the the stuff he's accomplished is not... Not nothing. I mean, he's passed a, a big tax bill and he's done a ton of deregulation. He's confirmed two Supreme Court justices and a, a lot of judicial nominees. That's all in the bucket of conventional Republican president. Any other Republican president would have pursued those goals. But the two goals that are definitional Trump goals, which is to change China's behaviour and to build the wall. They were two issues that defined him as a politician. He He's in a really tough spot right now. Uh, he's kicked the can down the road on both issues. He's, he's signed a short-term continuing resolution to defer the shutdown fight over the wall. And he's had this dinner with President Xi in Buenos Aires on the weekend, which resulted in effectively a 90-day ceasefire of this trade war and this confusing mess of competing statements that came out of both camps afterwards. So there's a huge TBD next to these two issues. And I find it very hard to see how he gets the money to pay for his wall. And I find it very hard to see how he gets China to do any of the really big important stuff like change their industrial theft practices and and these issues that are really, really systemic. So the question then becomes, okay, If Trump can't get those things done and then he has Mueller coming down his neck, Mm -hmm. Democrats taking over the House and a blizzard of subpoenas and a wobbly stock market, how does he respond to all of those pressures? Well, and based on what you have seen historically, what's your best guess? Not that that we should use our crystal ball too often, but do you expect that he has it in him to modulate some of his own behavior? Or do you think it'll be some continuation of what we have seen in recent days with the muddled messaging on China? I don't think he thinks it's in his best interests to modulate 
I mean, we he even basically said that to us when we talked to him a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We said, you keep calling the press the enemy of the people. You're, you're, you know that that could have consequences. The crazy people could actually, I think Jim, I think Jim even said, you know, someone could die. He did. And Trump said, you know, my people like it. You know, I go to the crowds and, and that's what they like. And, you know, you take the wall as an example. You know, there were advisors telling him, please talk about the economy. You know, Republicans on the Hill, please talk about the economy. And Trump would say, when I talk about the economy, people get bored. You know, they want to hear about these, you know, the, these inflammatory issues and these really hardcore base issues. So I don't think he sees it in his his political interest to modulate. And I expect that he would respond in the way he usually does, which is by picking a foil which will probably be a Democrat or maybe even an establishment Republican, and hammering them in a pretty savage way, blaming others, um, lashing out, and creating the idea for his base that he's fighting for them and being foiled by, you know, XYZ bogeymen. Don't you think, though, that, and and I, I agree with you that I think that's generally how he approaches it, but in the in the bundle of internal contradictions that is Donald Trump, don't you think there is also a, a side of him that is serious when he says or means it and when he said when he's saying it that he would like to find common cause with Nancy Pelosi, who I think he likes much more than people right. and certainly more than his base would expect? I think there are moments where that that's true and then there are moments when it's <laughs> false, you right. know, like what might be true at 9.30 a.m. can become false by 11 a.m. If, if he sees something that, you know, creates cognitive dissonance. So, yeah, I I think that's true. I think he would love particularly to um, have building projects being erected all around the country with the Trump administration in gold (laughs) lettering on them. And and frankly, my understanding is that he actually prefers the democratic approach to building infrastructure Mm -hmm. than his own you know, I was told by someone that he referred to the infrastructure plan as Gary's plan. That's his own administration's infrastructure plan, which is yeah. public-private partnerships. Trump is much more in favour of large federal spending, uh, which is democratic approach. But he's also said, you know, to take that whole thing of what ha- what's true at 9am is not true at 11am, he's also said, if you guys investigate me, you can go to hell. I'm not doing any legislating with you. So... Yes, maybe there is, he likes Nancy Pelosi on a personal level. I just don't know how much that matters because as soon as Elijah Cummings and these new chairmen start investigating Trump, I just think he goes into the war war path. You raised, I think, one of the the key aspects of covering this man and this White House, uh, which is that what is true in one moment is not true uh, in another moment. (laughs) Um, And I think that as reporters, we have all faced challenges with that. So. I want you to talk a bit, since this is a media podcast, a mm. little bit about your approach to covering him, and then we can get into some specific uh, stories. So, for instance, when uh, we were covering the campaign at The Times, um, my then colleague Ashley Parker and I, uh, and Alex Burns, who we covered a lot of these stories with, we would come up with sort of a common thread of fact, that it had to be that multiple sources right. confirmed one one basic right. thing, and then everything else would fall off to the right. wayside, and that we would we would hedge things in ways we never had before. Right. Because until he actually announced it, it wasn't necessarily right. true. And even if he does announce it, right. it's not necessarily true. Right. First, let me ask you: Why don't you talk about your approach to making right. sure that what you have is can hold withhold scrutiny? Because yeah. we all have this problem yeah. uh, in this White House. And then, what are the moments that you think have held up? What are the moments that you would take back? Yeah. Well, it's a really it's a really good question, and. Um, I'm still 
learning and adapting. So the first thing I do, just as a general principle, is if I'm told something by a senior administration mm-hmm. official, it's I assume it's false until mm-hmm. proven otherwise. Okay. And I, I've just had to take that approach. <laughs> okay. I'm now hedging in a way that is almost comical. So, like, I recently broke the story that Trump had settled on Pat Cipollone mm-hmm. for his White House counsel. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote that story, I think I published it on a Saturday afternoon, I knew that Pat Cipollone, the fact I had was that Pat Cipollone had had started filling out his paperwork. Right. So I didn't write, my lead sentence wasn't, you know, I could pull it up now, but it wasn't Donald Trump has decided. It was, I literally wrote, Pat Cipollone has begun filling out his paperwork, (laughs) but, you know, for this, Mm because I knew that that was a fact. Okay. The sentence Donald Trump has decided, I made a big mistake early on. It, it was My story was correct. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote I broke the story that he was pulling out of the Paris climate deal. Mm-hmm. But I made the big mistake of saying Donald Trump has decided because, yes, you know, he told people he decided. But then after I published my story, he spoke to a White House official and he said, what do you think I should do? Right. And But it doesn't mean he hasn't made up his mind. He's just always polling people. Even I knew that they had they were scheduling the event for the next day. The speech was written. They were calling surrogates. All of these things were happening in the afternoon. So it, it's, it wasn't correct to say he's on the fence. But you need to find new language because there is no such thing as Donald Trump has decided. It's not a, it's not a verb that you can almost use with this guy because he loves to create uh, misdirection. Mm-hmm. He loves to uh, keep flexibility open and he loves to reverse himself. So it's very, very challenging. Another recent example, like I broke a story about uh, that Nikki Haley was resigning as, as UN ambassador. And I knew that it was right. I knew, like, I had mm-hmm. incredibly good sourcing on it and I knew it was happening. I still felt this little thing in my stomach when we published. I was like, shit, maybe this guy's going to screw me. You know, maybe he's going to, like, pull the rug out and say, guess what, it's not happening. She's, you know, UN ambassador for life or something. So it's nerve-wracking and um, I've started to, like, find ways to hedge that I would probably never do in any normal circumstance. Should we all be approaching reporting him differently? You and I both know that this is the case, you yeah. know, in terms of what he does to our stories, to the fact that... Because right. you left out one thing that he likes to do, too. It's not just misdirection. He also likes to embarrass reporters. Oh, yeah, he no likes, doubt. He likes to create situations no where he can say, you got it wrong. No doubt. Do we all have an obligation to present this differently, or don't we? But do you... You know, we, we have... Look, I have received intense criticism. Right. You've received intense criticism. Right. Do you think that some of that criticism is valid and that we all have a a responsibility to be different in our approach? I do to some extent. I think the basics of reporting don't change, but I think when you have a situation where, like, I literally don't think you can write a sentence Donald Trump has decided, that by by definition is a a different type of approach. Mm -hmm. I also think that uh, when he does try to, I mean, he does try to pit reporters against each other. There's no doubt about that. One thing I like to do as a sort of, because uh, it, it does create distrust uh, or exacerbates distrust mm-hmm. in the media. What he does is that 
when there is a report that he says at the time is fake news and then turns out to be 100% accurate, mm. I do like to point that out to remind people. Like, I remember one that stands out was you wrote a piece about Michael Cohen that actually, you know, this was not the coziest, most perfect relationship that's ever existed. And at the time, Trump was like complete fake news, trying to pit him against him. And now Michael Cohen poses probably one of the biggest threats to his presidency and feels a sense of personal betrayal and vengeance. So, I mean, we need to both call it out when we see it, but then also remind people when the reporting stands up um, and and his initial comments about it are false. I, I appreciate you reminding people on that specific story. And yes, I think we all need to sometimes yeah. remind people what has, um, uh, what has held up. Um, I want to speak a little more specifically about you, um, and and then I want to uh, talk a bit more about your specific your personal experiences with Donald Trump. But for those who are listening, um, who might not have been familiar with your work three years ago, um, you know, before you were where you are, talk a bit about your history um, covering DC, how you got to this seat. So I'm from Australia, as you probably can tell. What? Uh, no, no, sorry. Crazy. Right? Um, you hid that so well, yeah, yeah, so yeah, thank yeah. you. No, I've been trying to Appreciate hide that. It. <laughs> Look, I come from a fairly traditional background, uh, reporting background. Describe I, for people what that means. Well, so my first job ever was, I think I was 15 or 16. Uh, Your first news a, job? Was a copy boy um, in uh, what was then the Sun-Herald, which is a Sunday tabloid. And I used to do, it was called police rounds. So I used to sit up, I don't even know if they do this anymore. They actually don't, they, certainly at the Sun-Herald, they don't do well, it Well, wait, anymore. before you go further, yeah. explain to people what a, co- what a, what a, copy, what a boy, copy boy is, because a lot of people don't know. Copy boy is a gopher. You basically do whatever the hell the editor shouts at you or the journalist shouts. You, 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 fetch, you fetch things, you, you get them coffee, you get them dinner. You know, I, I remember one time on my knees, like, cleaning under desks and being abused by some <laughs> crotchety old, like, cooking editor. So, like, you do all the stuff that no one wants to do. Right. But um, part of it was, which I ended up doing, was, was something called police rounds, which was, they don't do it anymore, but you used to sit up in this room. It was this stuffy little room, and you, it was, like, six different police scanners from all around Sydney, and it was you're basically listening in on cops talking okay. as they're driving okay. around. And so you're hearing for what's what's happening. So okay. it's mostly very boring. It's okay. like, you know, just general conversation. But every now and again, it'll be, you know, oh, there's a break in at whatever and we're on our way. And your job is then, it's like an early detector, basically. You hear something that's newsworthy, you call down to the news desk and get them onto it, get the police reporters onto it. So you would sit in there for eight hours and it was almost like it would send you crazy. So I did that through high school and college. And how many days a week were you? How many oh, hours a week just were you doing weekends, okay. just weekends. Okay. I was, you know, I was at school. Um, but then at university, a little bit more than that. But I actually didn't want to be a journalist. Um, what did you want to be? I didn't know. Like the reason I didn't want to be a journalist was because my dad's a journalist, mm-hmm. my aunt's a journalist, my aunt's a crime reporter, my uncle's a crime reporter, my dad's a, a health and science broadcaster, and I, I didn't want to like. I just felt that it would be unimaginative mm-hmm. or you know, derivative, and that I would be seen as Norman Swan's son. I didn't want that as well. So I actually avoided it and sort of had this, you know, a a career of about three years in Mm -hmm. advertising in my Mm -hmm. early 20s. 
And then I, I really started as a journalist at about 25 okay. as, a, as a most junior reporter okay. um, at the Sydney Morning Herald. So I came up traditionally through okay. covering cops, crime, mm-hmm. local stuff, and then federal politics. And then I came over to the US on a, it was a fellowship program. Okay. It's like, it's really cool, actually. It's, it's called the American Political Science Association Congressional Fellowship. And this Australian organization every year sponsors one Australian to spend a year on Capitol Hill to kind of okay. on a staff as a fellow to learn about the Hill, how it works. And the idea is you're supposed to go back to Australia and proselytize about America. But my <laughs> goal was to use it to get someone to hire me. And uh, so that's how I got my foot in the door over here. What year was that? 2014. Um, and the Hill was your first job? Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, what? describe your coverage there. I mean, my memory um, is that you were on the Trump campaign, but what else were you doing? Yeah. No, so, so I started out uh, was as camp, sort of doing campaign finance, but it was so loose that I could do Like, I was on the campaign team. So I, I used that to get to know donors, and then mm-hmm. I sort of ended up covering Trump and, you know. Why did you end know. up covering Trump? Just because I didn't feel like, well... I had a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. They, they were great. They, okay. There was no real, like, you have to cover sure. X person. And I was more covering Republicans, so I okay. sort of migrated towards Trump. So this is before he was the nominee, though. But, yeah, but, I, you know, I didn't do amazing work. Okay. I did sort of very incremental. A self-deprecating of you. Okay. Um, but part of it was also because I, I saw on the other side, on the Clinton side, that there were reporters who'd known the Clintons for, like, in some cases, like, 20 years. And it just seemed like Fortress Clinton was <laughs> impenetrable. And Fortress Trump, you could just walk in the front door <laughs> and, like, you know... The guards had gone off duty. Call up Bannon. You know the, what the I mean? Guards like, were fight, the guards yeah. were fighting with each other over yeah, the there, corner. There right. was, like, a little... It wasn't even a moat. You right. could just, like, basically cruise in. So, right. and as you know, there's not that many people you have to know to really... You know, certainly in, on that campaign, it was a small campaign. Yeah, I mean, 10 people you could talk to mm-hmm. and, and you'd have a very good idea of, you know, what was going on. So uh, in some ways, it was also just easier. Had you ever covered anyone like him before you started covering him? <laughs> the only person who I could even put in the same universe as him is, a, is an Australian politician called Clive Palmer, okay. who was this eccentric coal billionaire who went into politics and started his own party. I think it was called the Palmer United Party and was, you know, very outrageous and populist, very, very populist, and used to use some of the same tactics in terms of beating up on the media and et cetera. So, but not really. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break now for a word from our sponsors. We'll be back with Jonathan Swan from Axios after this. Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter. Coming up next, here is a story about one business looking for the right candidates on the road to hired. This is the road to hired, brought to you by ZipRecruiter. And this is the sound of success. Greg Donner and Ron Lom run the Rockridge Group, a staffing and recruiting company in Silicon Valley. And every time they sign a new client, they bang a gong with a soup ladle. Not surprising for two old friends who are huge fans of 80s hair metal. As you can see, I still live in the 80s. The feathered hair and everything looks good. Greg and Ron use ZipRecruiter and its matching technology to find highly specialized professionals to work in the tech sector. And finding that perfect fit is no easy task. It's one of those needles in the haystack that have been kicked around by every internal recruiter and maybe external agency. And they're doing this at volume. Using ZipRecruiter is really our main source of how we're able to find those candidates and individuals that fit those needs. It's the first place we go to post a role. 
we'll use the resume database where we're finding something rather tricky and we want to try to be a bit more proactive. For these guys, it's not just about winning business and ringing that gong. They go to sleep at night knowing they've just put people to work. You know, I can put my head down every night and fall asleep. Yeah, you got someone a job. You got someone a job. And someone who needed a job. And then when, the, when they say to you, thank you so much, this is a life changer, that's a big deal. When it comes to hiring for even the most challenging positions, ZipRecruiter's powerful technology makes it easy. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Thanks to our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. You can try ZipRecruiter for free. No money. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. And we are back with Jonathan Swan. Jonathan had just been telling us about uh, his history uh, covering police and getting to into the U.S. and covering U.S. politics and then co- beginning to cover Donald Trump. So I want to I want to start you out now on covering this administration. What do you think as we approach the end of year two about his relationship with the media that covers him? You were talking before we went to the break about an Australian uh, candidate who liked to beat up on the media, uh, right. invoke some of the same tactics. Right. But Donald Trump does it as something of a game, doesn't he? Yeah. It's not really that genuine, since he seems to need the media like oxygen. Right. So I don't think I've ever seen a political figure who is more obsessed with the media than Donald Trump. Describe how that manifests. Well, just the sheer amount of TV he watches is staggering. Yeah. I mean... How much would you estimate it as a day? So he wakes up, you know, we know from sort of his tweets, but he, he wakes up in the 5 a.m. hour usually, and his first meeting of the day is usually 11 o'clock, mm-hmm. his intelligence briefing. Mm-hmm. So there's effectively six hours of ungoverned time in the residence with a television and a phone. And this is like John Kelly's worst nightmare, sort of. And then also at the end of the day, you know, he'll have his, maybe his last meeting, depending if he's got events or whatever, at four o'clock, and then he goes back to the residence. So there's sort of, he doesn't sleep very much, so there's 12 hours of ungoverned time. You know, if you go around Capitol Hill, I'm sure you, as I'm sure you do, and talk to Republicans on the Hill and say, when's the last time you heard from Trump? It's often when they've been on Fox and Friends and they got a call from yep. him saying how good they were yep. or whatever. So in a way, the television, he's so improvisational and reactive. The TV is his input and then his output is the phone or in, or dual input. So mm-hmm. he'll, he'll, he'll see a story, yep. the caravan on Fox, yep. he'll call, you know, whatever, Kirsten Nielsen or, 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 or Lou Dobbs or whoever and get some more input. And that begins to set the government. You guys did a great story on this, actually, how the machinery of government kind of yes. springs into action. I think it might have been Julie Davis. Julie Davis. Yeah, it was, it was a great was story. So, but but that's, that's what happens. I mean, you see this. There was a press conference, I think, in New York. I think it was the, might have been the Unger one. I mean, Trump is is so obsessed with the media that he knows who's buying which media company or, or which deals are in. I think he congratulated a reporter on their company being purchased by or... He, he, or... he did, and he was. it was really striking to me. He, re- he recognized Jamichelle Sindor, who used to oh, be at yeah. the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, who, had, who had been a 2016 reporter. She also covered the administration in the early days for the Times. Yep. Um, she's on TV a lot, and right. I think he sees her on TV right. a lot. And so right. I think... And I, I, what was striking to me about it was his fascination with the New York Times in particular, right. which right. we know is, is right. long held. Right. So, yeah. That's sort of shown when... When people get um, congratulatory 
newspapers sent to them. It's often the Times with Sharpie, you know, good job or whatever. There's still nothing better for Donald Trump than getting the front page of the New York Times and a reasonably, you know, uh, <laughs> complimentary headline that there's still nothing better for him. Like he loved the the one when they passed the tax bill. He he wrote on that for quite mm-hmm. a few people. So, but his relationship with the media is yes, there is a there is a gamesmanship to it. Um, you see in some of the interviews how fluent he is in the language of talking to reporters. You know, oh, we'll just go off the record for this on the record. Or, you know, sometimes he bungles off the record, but you can use it. You know, it's this very kind of. It's the language of someone who's been dealing with reporters for 30 years. But when we talked to him about the enemy of the people rhetoric, it did strike me that there was something kind of real to it, that he actually... I don't know if some... I can't go inside his head, Mm -hmm. you know, put him on the couch, but, like, it does seem that something might have changed and that he actually does... I don't know how much of it's a game anymore. Like, I, I feel like sometimes he really does you know, want to use this language in quite a deliberate and, yeah, maybe it's not a game sometimes. To that end, let's talk about the Jim Acosta press credential incident. There were conflicting views on this, but across the, because not every reporter necessarily agreed with Jim's approach, but I think every reporter agreed that you were entering dangerous territory when you have the White House pulling a hard pass, which is a security pass, not a press credential, right. um, based on a president's dislike of having a question asked. Where did you come down on that? Oh, I mean, I thought just that. I mean, I don't think that they should be removing people's hard passes for that sort of thing. Um, and I also, while Jim has a very different approach to me, I actually sometimes think that he's like, just throwing stuff at Trump sometimes creates answers or opens up air. You know, I remember being in London with Jim Acosta and and others and Trump did his press conference with Theresa May and Jim, like, shouted out something as Trump was leaving and Trump turned around and answered the question. I think it might have had something to do with Russia. So, uh, you know, I I, I think there's a place for for that kind of um, approach, even though it's not my approach. Um, But generally speaking, my read on that, situation was that they were actually setting a predicate. I don't think this is over. I think what they did was they didn't lose that case on Mm -hmm. First Amendment grounds. It was a due process situation. So by setting up these rules, Mm -hmm. it seems like they're actually setting a predicate for doing this down the track. Mm -hmm. I I don't think we've heard the last of this. Going back to something you mentioned about having a different approach, um, I want to talk a bit about your approach um, and how you would characterize it. And then I want to talk about your recent interview with the president. How would you describe what you... I've seen how people describe how you do your job. How would you describe how you do your job? I just see myself as a reporter. And I use that word. I never call myself anything else. I am quite a blunt instrument. I'm not the... I'm, I'm a very mediocre writer. I'm not the smartest person going around. There's plenty of people... You don't who really much, need to devalue yourself. I'm, not, I'm actually not. I'm actually being honest. I'm not trying to be cute. I'm actually being sincere. Okay. I'm really being sincere. What I'm really, really good at is getting information mm-hmm. and hustling. And I see my job... And getting people to talk to and you. And getting people to talk to me and finding ways to get people to... to, to find fault lines between mm-hmm. or inside organisations and work out how to leverage pieces of information. Mm-hmm. I am really, really good at that. And I always ha- and I was instinctively good at it 
um, in Australia and I'm really good at it here. I know what my strengths are and I know what my weaknesses are. I see my job as like shaking a giant tree. Like I basically wake up in the morning and try to make as many source contacts as I can in a day. I'm relentless. I work seven days a week, which I always have. And I basically set meetings way, way ahead. So for important people, I try and like right now I'm mm -hmm. scheduling breakfasts in, in late January mm -hmm. because I want to get people in their diary. Mm -hmm. So it's a mixture of face-to-face -face and then a lot of like encrypted texting calls. But it's basically just if you make more calls than your competitors, you will get stories whether you're, you know, mm -hmm. smarter than them or not. There's, and I think the other part of it is, of, of, of the way I see my job, is there's all this stuff happening in rooms that we're not allowed into. And I've always wanted to tell people what's happening in the room and to find out to the best of my ability how these decisions are being made that then become public policy um, and piecing that together after the caravan moves on, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. So you're a reporter. And that's all I ever want to be. I mean, I, I have no ambition mm -hmm. to do anything else. Like, in 40 years' time, I just want to be a reporter. Explain to people who don't... Uh, explain to people what happened when you interviewed the president. Um, you received a lot of criticism yeah. um, for your reaction. Um, do you think the criticism was fair? Would you undo it? And how do you respond to people who say that you're trying to keep access portals open in exchange for... I've seen plenty of negative right. stories from you about the administration or stories that they right. certainly did not like. Right. Um, but I'm hoping you can address this. Well, it's pretty simple. I, I took a piece of reporting into an interview uh, that I didn't expect the president to confirm. Um, when he confirmed it, I was surprised. And that's what you see in the video. Do I, if I could do it again, would I do it differently? Yeah, sure. I, I, would, I would ask tougher follow-up questions. I would probably modulate my facial expressions and other things. But I'm glad we were able to break that news. Uh, it's an important story. And also, I would note that we, we broke other news in that interview. I mean, we were the first reporters to ask President Trump about the use of an American-made bomb mm -hmm. to blow up a school bus full of kids in Yemen. And, you know, it surprised me a little bit that it took months for anyone in the press corps to present him with mm -hmm. that question. So, look, I'm always grateful for good faith criticism. I advice, suggestions, how I can be a better reporter. And I'm lucky I've got, like, talented and hardworking people, colleagues, and even, not just at my own organisation, who, who help me do better. But I think a lot of the, the criticism is phony. And, and some of the people who've criticised me, some of the publications who've tried to suggest that, you know, my work is devoid of public value, they're quite insistent on aggregating my reporting when it's negative. You know, I, I reported recently that Trump wants to cut off funding to Puerto Rico and two of the publications that wrote, you know, that I'm this worthless hack, you know, uh, aggregated it. So that's fine. Like, I don't really, like, you know, I read all the criticism. Like, I, I, I take yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, I do. I okay. read it all. And, and And I think, like... You have to. And by the way, it's good. It keeps you humble. And it, it's good to get your head kicked in every now and again. It's good to get your teeth kicked in. And, um, and yeah, like, I screw up all the time. I try not to, but, like, sure. And also, <laughs> the funny thing about this whole access idea, it's a serious conversation. And there are always tensions when you're doing up-close reporting. But the, the irony is... 
sucking up, like being sycophantic actually doesn't get you anywhere. People need to be slightly afraid of you. They need to know that you have information. And that's the way you leverage people. It's not by saying, oh, you know, how wonderful are you, et cetera, et cetera. Because if that was the case, we would see bigger sycophants breaking a lot more news. <laughs> On that note, we're going to take another quick break right now. Back with Jonathan Swan after this. Today's show is brought to you by Hilton. When you travel for work, do you stay by the airport or do you stay downtown? Do you take your clients out for dinner? Do you have room service? Should you pack your swimsuit? How do you answer these questions? Just ask yourself, what would the boss do? Here's the answer. The boss would choose Hilton. Hilton has modern meeting spaces and amazing pools and everything else you need to get down to business and a little pleasure. So check out Hilton Hotels and Resorts and travel like a boss. And we're back with Jonathan Swan. I want to pick up on something that you were saying before the break. You were talking about the importance of uh, the news you made in that interview, and you made news on a few fronts, but one of which was about how he was uh, possibly going to end birthright citizenship with an executive order. We haven't heard him talk about this since. Given that, is there anything that could have been done differently on your end? Um, How does that advise you going forward in terms of how you deal with news? No. So, so look, the way that uh, birthright thing came about was Trump actually, and I think about July... The Washington Post published a piece by Michael Anton, who's a former administration official, Mm -hmm. and the Washington Post op-ed by Anton lays out this pretty fringy legal argument uh, that's held by a few people on the right that you can get rid of birthright citizenship uh, without a constitutional amendment. You can actually do it by an executive order. And the president reads it Mm -hmm. and thinks that it's the best thing he's ever seen. He starts talking about it internally, not only to policy staff, but Mm -hmm. also to some people who have uh, legal authority. He was told that this is not something that he could do. People were very concerned about it. Mm -hmm. And after we broke that story, I got a couple of phone calls from people saying in there saying, I really wish you hadn't asked that question because it's not actually helpful to us. They were trying to, like, shore up suburban seats. Uh, You know, he'd already gone pretty hard on the Mm -hmm. caravan, That was just another notch that kind of took it over the edge. So, again, I see the criticism that, you know, this was President trying to, you know, say something inflammatory Mm -hmm. uh, ahead of the midterms. But the reality is he was talking about it privately, sporadically Mm -hmm. for months. The fact that people don't think he can do it and um, he's been stymied is obviously relevant. And I think the mistake we made is the mistake we acknowledge, which is... Our headline sucked. It was like Trump to terminate whatever we should have said, you know, made very clear in the headline that this was very, very legally dubious. And we should have had, uh, a, a, which we added later, a correction to his comment that America is the only country in the world to do this because there are 30 other countries that do it. So, like, we, you know, we did, a, we did a pretty shitty job on our first take of that story. And we've acknowledged that. But I don't regret asking him the question. I don't Mm -hmm. regret breaking that news. And it was something that he was talking about privately. And there's no even to go, like, I'm not even going to bother dignifying the sort of conspiracy theories that were run by people who should know better, where they were saying, oh, this was a, you know, orchestrated between me. I mean, like, it's just laughable for anyone who knows anything about how this White House works and how he works, that, that like, I'd sat down with Bill Shine and cooked this up, I mean, or Trump. Like, it's, like, truly absurd. Um, 
Pre-planning is not their strong suit, among other yeah. uh, things. Um, there's no lot of 40 chess going on. There's 20, 20 D checkers. Um, to that end, <laughs> um, we're, we've talked about what we have respectively gotten right and wrong, and I've, there's plenty that we've yeah. gotten wrong as well over time. Um, but it's interesting. One of the complaints that I hear about the administration late, from the administration lately is that increasingly sort of the tenor of coverage about what is going on internally doesn't always actually match how they're experiencing it. And so it's gotten me thinking about, well, I think some of that is because, you know, Trump has this effect on people where they are sort of the, the frog boiling in the water and they don't really notice it until uh, that the water temperature has changed. But but it, it did get me thinking about what, what the collective we get right and mm. wrong about the arcs of mm. coverage in this administration. And is there anything, what do you think it is that we, the, the larger we, don't get quite right mm. about this administration. Well, I think Mark Leibovich wrote a very amusing piece recently about the mood piece, the Trump mood piece. Presidential mood rings. The presidential mood. Right. And, you know, the, the privately fuming, according to the people familiar with the private fumes. Um, the fumes, like, the fumes I think I've written a privately we've fuming. All written, you know, we've all I'm written pretty sure I've written we, we've, we've, all, we've all worked the fumes beat. There's no right, question. Right, I've worked that. So, so I... I don't think that he is in this constant state of like steam coming out of his ears at all. In fact, you know, when I the opposite, he's actually very like when I talk to people who have spent time with him in the private dining room, he's usually very relaxed or and can be very charming. Oh yeah, totally. Of course, yeah. Um, And you know, sometimes those pieces are just way way overdone and create a sense of the other like um, is the sort of chaos in the West Wing genre, because it creates a sense that people are running around with their hair on fire. It's actually this very sort of pretty sedate uh, place with these, unless you're in that circle around Trump, unless you're in the room with Trump when he's like riffing. In the room or in the outer oval. Or in the outer oval. You know, I remember someone telling me that when Trump fired Comey, and this is like someone who was in in the West Wing at the time, they weren't that far from the oval. And Trump, you know, fires Comey and they just they just seen him just before it and everything kind of seems kind of normal and they go back to the desk look up the TV and it says <laughs> Comey fired and they're sort of sitting there going wait this happened like 20 feet from me and and everyone was just sort of sitting there going oh okay I guess we have to respond to this now um so chaos in a way is 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 correct because there isn't normal processes and mm-hmm. process normal processes are totally inverted by the president but i guess the the sense of chaos is not always there it's it's people sort of sitting around going oh mostly just not even knowing what's going on i think he is very good at compartmentalizing his own stuff and yeah. other people perhaps can't compartmentalize it the same way right. and just get used to the i, I think noise. The, the other thing that is sort of wrong is like what are they saying in the West Wing about Russia? It's like they don't talk about right. it. Like, that is that is one hundred percent. I mean, the idea that they're all sitting around going, "Oh, is is Manafort going to do?" Like that's just not something that is discussed. Uh, we don't have much time left, uh, so I just want to talk a bit about how you do your current job. Um, you described yourself earlier as a mediocre writer, um, mm. which was either admirable candor or being incredibly hard on yourself, but since I don't see your raw copy, I don't know. But uh, one of the things that Axios specializes in, uh, obviously, is uh, what you guys describe as smart brevity. Do you ever want to write longer pieces? Do you miss writing longer pieces, which The Hill is known for? I want to write much longer pieces, um, but not just magazine pieces, uh, 
ultimately books and really deep reporting. Um, again, like I, there's a lot of liberation to writing short mm -hmm. in certain circumstances where you don't need to put in paragraphs of filler with commodity quotes from nameless congressmen. You can just cut to the chase. But there are some stories that deserve much, much mm -hmm. longer treatment, and I absolutely want to do that. If everything goes well and I don't, like, smoke myself or drink myself to death in the meantime, I'd like to, in, like, 40 years' time, be reporting still and, and writing, hopefully, books and, and much longer serious treatments of, um, you know, my dream is to pick a topic, pick a war, pick a decision that has consequence and just report the hell out of it for like three years and just have this really definitive account uh, of something that has really big public import. Um, that would be kind of my dream. Smoking is not good for you and that's not going to help I you. I try to there. stop, but it's, they're so good. Like just one at the end of the day and like just sucking that first drag. Uh, okay. I, right. I, I, I smoked for a long time. <laughs> I don't need to be reminded of it. Um, something I wanted to ask you before, uh, and I, I want to end uh, on this note, but you had your interview with the president in, in the middle of a slurry uh, or, or flurry or whatever of interviews that he was doing at that point. He has done a, a striking number of interviews. It used to be that getting a presidential interview was sort of a big pomp and circumstance event. Do they matter as much as they used to since he gives so many and tends to contradict himself from one to the other? Technically, the answer is probably no. But uh, personally, I mean, hell, I'll take, I'll take another one if they'll let me. I mean, I tried, <laughs> I tried for we, – we this was our first on-the-record interview with Trump in mm -hmm. the time he was president. Mm. Jim and Mike interviewed him just before. Okay. I had tried for months. I set one up. It'd taken a long mm -hmm. time for January, and then I wrote a story they didn't like, and they cancelled the interview. So I was thrilled to have it, and I'll tell you what, like, I've got a thousand questions I want to ask him. I think one of the challenges is you, you have to, you want to ask him about the news of the day, but it's just so, you know, perishable, and he could change his mind after it. There are so many questions that still haven't been asked that go way beyond the news of the day that um, I'd love to ask him if I have a chance. Jonathan, thank you for coming on the podcast and thanks to all of you listening. If you liked this interview, please tell a friend about it. Uh, and if you want to tell me what you thought of my guest hosting, whatever it is you think, um, you can tweet at me or at, at MaggieNYT or email me at maggie.haberman at nytimes.com. Jonathan, where can people follow you online? Uh, if you want to, I'm on Twitter. It's <laughs> at Jonathan V Swan on Twitter. But honestly, you know, just just read Axios. It's, Go on to Axios. <laughs> oh, come on. You know, become a disciple of smart brevity. <laughs> hey, thanks to our sponsors and to Cadence 13 and Fox Media for selling those ads. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show, and to the producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. Most of all, thanks to Peter Kafka for letting me fill in for him today. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week. Today's show is brought to you by Ericsson. 5G is not just a step up from 4G, it's a game-changing advancement. It's 100 times faster. And the ultra-reliable, low-latency network means it can connect more than phones and tablets. It connects everything. Imagine a jam session with band members miles apart in perfect sync. It's happening. It's happening, man. 
Imagine an 8K entertainment system in your self-driving car that rivals your home theater. That is not happening, but it could happen. 5G will have the power to revolutionize existing industry models or even create entirely new ones. This is just a glimpse at what the future will look like with Ericsson and 5G. Find out how 5G will transform the world at ericsson.com slash 5G. I'm going to spell Ericsson for you. E-R-I-C-S-S-O-N dot com slash 5G. 